to have good fruit, you have to have a good tree. You cultivate it, you fertilize it, but if it's neglected or abused, it's going to produce bad fruit. Now, his illustration is clear. He is obviously not in league with the devil because of the fruit of his life. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study of the book of Jonah and find ourselves in chapter 2, verse 10. But today, Dr. Brogy is going to note from Matthew chapter 12 that Jonah was not a mythical figure as many claim, but rather a historical figure and that Jesus saw him as exactly that. Let's join Pastor Carl as he looks at the prophetic significance of Jonah. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, I took more courses under him than any professor. I loved Dr. Pentecost, we became great friends and I was able to pick up the phone and call him long after I graduated from this school. And he said, Carl, the key, the key to understanding Matthew 13 is Matthew chapter 12. Now, if you know Matthew 13, it's the kingdom parables. Why has Christ postponed the kingdom? Because of Matthew chapter 12. Because of their rebellion, because they are saying, this one, Yeshua Jesus, is doing what he is doing by the power of the devil himself. Now, that's the first point, the miracles that were performed. Secondly, there in your outline, let's think further about the parables that were expressed. The parables that were expressed. And I say parables because this is the terminology that the Gospel of Mark uses in the parallel account. Next to verse 24, write out Mark 3.23. Mark 3.23. Let me read it to you. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? So Jesus went on to explain that the kingdom of God has arrived not by giving them a lecture on theology, but by painting pictures, getting their attention through parables. So let's talk about a parable for a moment. It just literally comes from the Greek into English, parabole. Para means alongside, bole means to cast. And so it's a, it's a figure of speech where you cast alongside an illustration with a teaching. It, it's not just like an illustration a pastor might give. It's not a figure of speech. It, it, it's, it, it's a teaching that has an illustration cast alongside of it so that you might make a decision. He's calling people to respond when he gives these parables. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21, where you read of some of the parables of Christ, they are so penetrating, they are so personal, that the chief priests and the Pharisees from that day on want to seize him, and they want to murder him. So now we read in verse 25 of Matthew 12, and knowing their thoughts, circle that word thoughts, it's critical to understanding the passage, and knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, knowing what these Pharisees were thinking, Jesus now defends his authority, that he is the Messiah, and he uses three arguments that you do not want to miss. Argument number one, it's found here where he says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. So first he said, if he were casting out demons by Satan's power, then Satan clearly would be working against himself. 
By the way, he affirms that Satan has a kingdom. He affirms that Satan has a house. In the house, it's described and it's further elucidated for us later in the chapter in verses 42 and 43, is a man's body. This was Satan's house. And not only does he have a house, he has houses, as the verses that follow will indicate. His point is, is that if Satan casts out demonic powers out of his house, then he's opposing himself. Why? Because any kingdom, any city, any household divided against itself will not stand. And so it's a basic reason of truth. Therefore, he asks this question in verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? It cannot. Put out on the margin another verse that's important. Mark 3.26 in the parallel text. Write it down. Mark 3.26. Let me read it to you. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. Why would Satan let Jesus cast out a demon and free a man who's already under his power and control? To do so would divide his kingdom, and he may be wicked, but he is certainly not stupid. Satan is not fighting against himself. Their argument is both illogical, it's ridiculous, it's impractical, because Satan would never fight against himself. But Satan has a kingdom. He's called the God, small g, of this age. Adam lost the right to rule and Satan gained it. Christ will someday fully secure it when he rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. So that's his first argument. It's illogical for Satan to fight against himself. Notice his second argument in verse 27. If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they shall be your judges. If your sons, meaning the disciples of the Pharisees, cast out demons by the power of God, which they were quick and ready to affirm, if the power to cast out demons, as the Pharisees argued in that day, came from the hand of God itself, then why would you come to a different conclusion concerning me? If you are going to say that I am casting out demons by the evil one, then you have to conclude that your sons, your disciples, are casting out demons by the evil ones, and you would never come to that conclusion. And so under pressure coming up with this explanation, they've really painted themselves into a corner. If it was Satan's power, then both they and their sons are operating under that same power. So that's his second argument. If you believe exorcists who represent you because the Pharisees were over that group of people, if they're casting it out by the power of Satan, then you, uh, by, if I'm casting out by the power of Satan, then you have to conclude your disciples are doing the same. Now, the third argument, don't miss it, verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of, has come, why? Because the king is present. How do we know the king is present? because he's doing the things that Messiah King was promised to do. Now certainly, Jesus is not the only one who did miracles up till this time in human history. But miracles were never done consistently through the history of Israel, just on the great turning points. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob never did a miracle. 
First one to do a miracle was Moses, and then for a short time, Joshua, until they went into the promised land. Hundreds of years went by, none of the prophets, major, minor, ever did a miracle. Elijah and Elisha did, because again, it was one of the great turning points of Israel's history. Now, miracles were done, but not through men. Daniel witnessed miracles. Isaiah witnessed miracles. But through men, no, just a limited select few. And hundreds of years go by, and we don't see the next cluster of miracles until Christ and the apostles come on the scene. And there were some miracles that were unique to Messiah. No one opened blind eyes before. That's a messianic miracle according to Isaiah 35. Now, while we're here for a moment, let's think about the kingdom of God for just a moment because there are three aspects to God's kingdom that the scriptures delineate for us. Certainly, there's the aspect that God is sovereign, that he is ruling and reigning over the whole world. For instance, uh, in Psalm 103, 19, we read, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. You need to write down these verses. I'll tell you why, because there's a whole group of Christians, they're called amillennialists, and they say this is all there is concerning the kingdom. And so the way they are approaching these days that we are living in is distorted and twisted. They think somehow things are going to turn around and everything's going to change when they need to be warning God's people We are in that time frame called the latter days when Israel would be back in the land. This is the final time frame of human history. But they are right in saying certainly God is ruling in heaven above. Listen to what David said in Psalm 145, 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. But what they don't see and what they deny is a literal kingdom because they think the church has replaced Israel. We haven't replaced Israel. God has made a covenant with the Jews that as long as the sun and the stars and the moon are in the skies, Jeremiah 31 says, I will not forsake Israel. And so God made a promise of a kingdom to the Jews. And we pray it, your kingdom come, your will be done literally on earth as it is in heaven. And so the scripture pictures Messiah coming back, standing on the top of the Mount of Olives, and he will rule sovereignly across the world. And the New Testament gives us the length of that kingdom being a thousand years. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You're praying for the literal kingdom. On the other hand, beyond the fact that God is ruling today in heaven above, someday God will literally rule on earth below. God is ruling within hearts today through a second birth. And so Jesus can say, the kingdom of God is within you in Luke 17, 21. Meaning when you are saved, when you are born again, you have been visited by the spirit of God and his kingdom is operative in your heart. There's a spiritual dimension to the kingdom. And that's why prior in this section, back in verse 18, you will notice an Old Testament quote. You see the change in the typeset? Don't look at me, look at your Bible, I want you to get it. Uh, See the change in typeset? That tells you it's an Old Testament quotation, and it's coming from Isaiah 42 in verse one. It's a messianic prophecy. Let me read it to you from Matthew's account. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. 
and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This is the kingdom of God in their midst. Now he tells us another mini parable. Notice verse 29. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He is reminding them that if a burglar goes into a house, he cannot rob it unless somehow he can overpower and maybe tie up the owner. And Jesus, in effect, is saying, Satan is the strong man, and I am invading Satan's territory, and I'm able to do it because I'm more powerful than Satan. By driving out these demons that inhabited this man shows that he is stronger than Satan, that he's not in league with Satan, but that he's against Satan. Put out in the margin, would you, Luke 11, 21 to 22. Luke 11, 21 to 22, where we have the fuller reading of what Jesus said. He has entered into Satan's realm and he's come with the spoils of victory. Notice what Luke says. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. Jesus is stronger than the strong man. He's not captive to the evil one. He's not controlled by the evil one. The Spirit of God is upon him. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he therefore has brought the kingdom of God in their midst. Now, okay, you with me? Say amen, okay. There's the miracles that were performed. There is the parables that were expressed. Third and finally, let's think about the conclusions, the conclusions that were drawn. So starting in verse 30, there's a conclusion you must make because everyone must choose sides. Neutrality is not an option. Notice, he who is not with me is against me. There can be no compromise. You're either with the Lord Jesus or you are against him. There's no middle ground. He removes every possible illusion for neutrality. And everyone within the sound of my voice will make a decision. You will either stand for Christ or against Christ. You say, I won't make a decision. Not to make a decision is to make a decision. There's no such thing as neutrality, not in God's kingdom. Furthermore, he says, and he who does not gather with me, notice, he scatters. If you do not gather or work for the Lord Jesus, either by your active opposition or your passive indifference, then you're against him. You are not for him. You're either on his team or you're not. And if you're not involved in gathering for the kingdom of God, and you're scattering or you are out of fellowship. If you can't remember the last time you tried to win someone to Christ, share a word of testimony, maybe something as simple as invite them to church or some event, then you're either A, lost, as he's describing it in this passion, this section, or B, you are out of fellowship with God and your heart is a million miles away. I don't care how many Bible studies you attend, how often you come to church, if you are not engaged in bringing people into the kingdom, and you're really not gathering for Christ. So Jesus' statement here would have been a rebuke and a warning to these Pharisees because they too needed to make a decision. And so notice the serious warning that follows, verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy 
shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. So the verse starts, notice with the word, therefore, because Jesus wants them to decide how these miracles were done. You can't remain neutral. neutral. And he's not just speaking to the Pharisees, but to the oikos, to the crowd, to the multitude that are present on this particular day. Now, certainly this verse has created a lot of consternation in people's hearts, sometimes amongst Christians, sometimes amongst unbelievers. So let's first talk for just a moment about what blasphemy of the Spirit is not. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, is not some moral sin. It's not rape or murder or adultery or child abuse. As wicked as those things are, Anyone who's committed those sins can still be saved. They can still be forgiven. Nor is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit some intellectual sin. As the agnostic or the atheist says, well, I I was a confessing agnostic. I I was a confessing. Well, you weren't. You really weren't because there's no such thing. It's only the arrogant, prideful testimony that says, I was an atheist. Don't say you're an atheist because you weren't. That's a lie. You weren't an atheist. Now, you might say, I confess to be an atheist, but every man in his heart of hearts knows there is a God. Well, I was an agnostic, and I just was opposed to God. I hated God. I've committed an unpardonable sin. No, there are atheists and so-called agnostics who have repented and believed and found forgiveness. Neither is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, just some verbal sin, some curse against God. And by the way, just like you can pray without words, you can curse God without words. One of the key words I asked you to circle is the word thoughts. You can commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in your thoughts because the thoughts ultimately can show itself in words. Knowing their thoughts, verse 25 says, Now, since this is an unforgivable sin, we need to know exactly what it is. So let's start by defining the word blasphemy. It's the word blasphemia in the verb blasphemeo. It comes right into English as blasphemy. And it's used in two levels in Scripture. It's used of someone who speaks against or insult or incurses another human. Or it's used of someone who speaks against the living God. You can blaspheme people. For instance, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 31, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, there it is, it's the word blaspheme in some English translations, render it that way, be put away from you along with all malice. So here he speaks of insults or curses that one human directs against another human made in the image of God. Look, it happens to every Christian. It happens to me as a pastor. People will say things against me, and my wife just says, that's part of being a pastor. And I said, you're right. They can blaspheme me until the day never ends. But by God's grace, I'm going to walk with him. And listen, if you crumble because someone slanders you, I hope you will keep walking with God because it is part of being a Christian But understand, you can also not just insult and curse humans and misrepresent them. You can insult and curse the living God. You can insult God the Father, and that can be forgiven. 
We've been in a series on Moses on Wednesday nights, right? And, and so the people leave uh, Egypt, and during the time of the Exodus, they gather all their gold, and they make this golden calf, and they, calf, and they say, this is the God that delivered us out of Egypt. And God calls that blasphemy. How do I know? Because Scripture interprets Scripture. And Nehemiah 9.18 gives us divine commentary on that verse. Even when they made for themselves a calf of gold and metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt, committed great blasphemies. This was considered a blasphemy against God the Father. That can be forgiven. So as we're defining terms, know first that words of cursing and insult towards God, the Father, or towards a fellow human being can be forgiven. And yet the passage is very specific about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven. Let's read verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Now verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So second, we need to ask an important question at this point. Why does verse 31 indicate that any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people? And I suppose we should pause here for just a moment because while we're speaking about what cannot be forgiven, we ought to underscore too what can be forgiven. Put it out there in the margin, Mark 3.28. Mark 3.28, let me read it to you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, all sins, all sins, will be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, there is not a sin that you have committed that God cannot forgive under the term blasphemy. God can forgive blasphemy against the Father. He can forgive all kinds of wickedness that you can think of. In fact, he can forgive blasphemy against the Son. We just read it. Why is it? that God can forgive blasphemy against himself and blasphemy against his son, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now listen carefully. The very first witness God brought came from the Father. He's called John the Baptist. He's prophesied in Isaiah 40, chapter 40, and he's prophesied in the last chapter of Malachi. And he is the forerunner of the Messiah. He was God's witness that the Messiah is going to come. And what did they do with John the Baptist? They rejected his witness. They said, we don't want to hear his witness. Now, many people responded, but understand, the leaders of Israel rejected him. And he spoke with them some very strong words. But not only was there the witness of God the Father, there was the second witness of God the Son. They had heard the words. They had seen the works and the miracles of the Messiah, the way he acted. Prophecy after prophecy was being fulfilled, and yet they turned their heart against him, and they were rejecting the witness of God the Son. There's only one witness left. That's the witness of God the Holy Spirit. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son will be forgiven him. Now understand, some did not fully comprehend who Jesus was and what he did. Though had they searched the scriptures, Jesus said, the scriptures speak about me. 
They could have only have come to one conclusion. And yet, clearly, there were many evil words that were spoken against the Lord Jesus, and those things could be forgiven. But God could not forgive these blasphemous words against the Spirit of God. Does that mean the Spirit of God is more important than Jesus? Of course not. Now, it is interesting when men often curse God, they never curse the Holy Spirit. I've never heard someone take the Holy Spirit's name in vain. But I've heard them take the Father's name in vain and Jesus' name in vain. And what's interesting to me is I've been in foreign countries and I've heard Muslims take the name of the Lord Jesus in vain. Interesting just to think about. So while they rejected the first witness of the Father, that could be forgiven. While they rejected the second witness of the Son, that could be forgiven. But the only witness left was God the Holy Spirit, and to shut your heart to him, there's no one else who can speak to you. You literally pluck out your spiritual eyes, and you can enter into a realm of irreversible consequences. Now, the unpardonable sin in the immediate context was the Lord Jesus doing miracles, and they said the power in Jesus that was operating was not God the Holy Spirit, though it was obvious that he was. It was obvious this is what the Messiah do. He would open up blind eyes. The Spirit of the Lord would be upon him, and they attributed his power to Satan. But understand, it is still a sin that can be committed, and I don't want you to miss this, and it will become so plain from the text. Some people say it can't be committed today because you cannot replicate the circumstances. Jesus is not physically on the earth where we can blaspheme the Spirit of God through him. And by the way, understand that the Lord Jesus, when he emptied himself, we speak of the kenosis. I did a whole sermon on that recently from Philippians. He didn't divest himself of any of his divine attributes, but he is willing to lay aside the exercise of those divine attributes and live in dependence upon the Spirit of God. Now, follow carefully. Look at verse 33. Either make the tree good. Jesus is calling them to make a decision. They hadn't committed this sin yet. You say, did they commit the sin? No, they didn't. Not while Jesus was here. We'll see that in a moment. They hadn't committed it yet. So he's appealing to them. Why? Because he loves them. He loves these people who hated him. He prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't really understand what they're doing. Either make the good tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. To have good, good fruit, you have to have a good tree. You cultivate it. You fertilize it, but if it's neglected or abused, it's going to produce bad fruit. Now, his illustration is clear. He is obviously not in league with the devil because of the fruit of his life. He went about, as Peter said, doing nothing but good. Everything he did was compassionate and good. He never had an ugly word, never had a, un, a mean thought. Everything he said, did, and acted was absolutely holy. Even though he lived a perfect life, Jesus was still accused of working in the power of the devil. The fruit of his work, however, reflected him as the Son of God. 
If you'd like a copy of today's message in its entirety, visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or give us a call at 877-787-7478 and request program JNH5. Of course, you can always use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we'll return to our study from the book of Jonah as we continue to search the scriptures.